0: Hello and welcome to the Stack Magazine's podcast. My name is Stephen Watson, I'm the founder of Stack, and this week I'm speaking to Mathieu Trier about Visions, the literary science fiction magazine he publishes as a sort of experimental creative outlet. As you might expect, Mathieu is a big fan of sci-fi, but he's also an inveterate tinkerer who has worked his way into creating a seriously impressive magazine by asking, how hard can it be? Obviously, anyone who's made their own magazine knows the answer is, it's really, really hard. But Mathieu has made life even more difficult for himself by doing ridiculous things like translating a French sci-fi novel into English and creating a typeface which he used in the magazine but also sold online and then used the money from selling the typeface to fund the printing of the magazine. The whole thing is just, like ridiculous and should never have worked except it's turned into this really special really lovely magazine all this is done in his spare time outside of his real job as a creative technologist for the BBC and as he says it's actually really important that this isn't the way that he makes his money it frees him up to take risks and do things because he's curious rather than because he necessarily knows that he can actually do them as I say, it all adds up to a lovely project and it's a great read too. So I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Mathieu Trier from Visions magazine. Uh, Mathieu, thank you very much for coming over to Somerset House.
1: Well, oh, hello. Um, I'm just pleased to be here.
0: <laughs> so you are the man behind this kind of crazy project. <laughs> Uh, called Visions and maybe you could tell us a little bit about what it is and where did that idea come from?
1: Sure so Visions is a science fiction magazine Uh, the idea behind it was to have a magazine that would present the more literary side of the of science fiction because I thought that around me the people around me and the people I used to work with didn't quite regard science fiction the same way I did and I kind of grew up with science fiction and so I've Kind of fondness for it and i just wanted people to be able to see what i was seeing and i guess through a combination sort of random things that i can get into i um, i ended up making this magazine which mixes fiction short stories which is what i like about science fiction and uh, non-fiction to bring sort of an anchor into reality And an additional cited magazine is that it mixes old stuff, so you've got classic texts of science fiction, also classic essays of non-fiction, and you have stuff by new writers. Um, And also, and last but not least really, uh, there's a translation, the first ever English translation of a book called uh, 15 ans by Regis Messac. And, uh, yeah, the first half is in the, f- in the first uh, volume, and the second half will be in the second volume. So um, it's, it's a collection of, of kind of weird and wonderful things, and I think that's the... It ends up being my visions of science fiction, I suppose. Okay, so you're clearly a sci-fi
0: fan yourself. The, you just like it, but there's also this other components which I think comes from another part of... Your life. So it's kind of, I it's, it's worth saying, sort of like, what do you do when you're yes. not making this magazine?
1: Yeah, so my, uh, my role job is, <laughs> uh, is to be a creative technologist, a, a software engineer with sort of a, a design kind of input, uh, is, what I, is how I frame it. And so I, I work at the BBC, and previously I was working at Penguin. And I think uh, a lot of the idea behind making it print was also to sort of get away from my uh, job as someone who makes digital things that are maybe a bit more ephemeral or have a, a shorter lifespan or actually live a long time off on, online, but have a sort of one period of of um, attractiveness and then just kind of fall into being disregarded. So I wanted, you know, I suppose one of the idea behind making it print only was so that it would stay on the shelf and like the books I have around my house that I've had for years I would be able to you know have that it's something that you don't really have you know and this maybe someone bookmarks you but does that count as a bookshelf you know I, I it's like who knows it, it, it's um yeah it's, it's I, I suppose the design aspect of it is, is was really me trying to get more to grips, grips with with what's D- designing a book entails, you know, having worked at Penguin uh, with, uh, with some really good designers, uh, Thomas Rington and, and Matthew Young, uh, both of them were great inspiration and also great help in, in making this. Uh, so it, it, was, it was kind of, I wanted to have a go, really. I think, I think that's, that's really, like I, was, I saw them doing it, and I was like, that looks cool. I want to do that too. <laughs> and so, you know, it was, it was kind of like this idea that I, I could maybe bring my vision of science fiction together with the text, but also laid out in a way that is inspired by what I see in UX and design online, but with that sort of knowledge uh, of print that I've acquired in the last few years.
0: So the the magazine is called Visions, and this first issue is Visions of Home. So what's the
1: thinking behind this as your your first issue? Right. Uh, That is a great question. I think when the idea kind of started, it was it was just about trying to make an anthology of science fiction, um, maybe just stuff that was out of copyright. And I wanted to unite the sort of different short stories that I've read across different uh, different collections. And in in a theme, I thought it would help to group these stories under one sort of name so that you'd you'd understand more the framing. Essentially, if you frame them, then you understand more the philosophical impact or the sort of forecasting that they might have. So if you say visions of cities, then it's suddenly, okay, yes, that's a description of a city or how a city works. And and actually, the first kind of prototype in my head was visions of cities. Um, but the reason for the th- the theme is actually uh, quite intertwined with the novel. So um, in the, the novel um, is about a sort of um, i guess it's post-apocalyptic it's it's bef- written before the second world war but describes quite accurately the sort of mechanism that the second world war is going to have and which countries are going to do what and the creation of this weapon that's going to annihilate all life and there are just a group of survivors there and essentially it's that idea that they've lost everything they've lost home and the second issue is visions of humanity because the book is kind of arguing that because they're starting from scratch, they're starting a new sort of humanity that, that it's a different kind of humans. And I thought these were you know, both themes that work really well. Home is a very sentimental thing. It's, it's also something that can be described or pinpointed. And I was quite keen for the book to be that, to not be telling people what home is but to be showing an array of visions of what home is and i think the you know through the books with the little vignettes that's like you know home is your planet uh, home is your head home is your friends and kind of weaving that in that home is just this bigger concept and Visions of humanity, I think, is, is going to be an interesting thing with AI and robots and things like that. But also, you know, what makes us human um, in an age of digital things? Um, what differentiates us as we, you know, as science advances and we discover more similarities with animals or with other things? It's like, ooh, okay, so what does it mean to be me, right?
0: Reading, the, reading this one, obviously I've not seen the second one yet, but reading this one, it really brought it home to me, that function of sci-fi... To reflect us back to ourselves, and the, I mean, that, obviously, that's like that's always mm-hmm. there in sci-fi. But I guess when you've got a series of stories which are talking about home, and maybe like you know they tend to set something up as seeming very strange uh, and like you know very very far away, either in the future or like, or geographically, yeah. but actually really that's all. And 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 I so I guess like you say with the short story, this is literally a, a, potentially what we're living through at the moment.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I'm I'm really glad that came through because it's, it's I think it's really the intent to to have to, to provide that reflective thing. You know, it's um I think it's maybe it's a strange tension, but you know, on, on the internet, people keep talking about this relatable thing. You know, memes spread because they're relatable, and science fiction is good if you can make that connection. It's like. Oh, I you know I sympathise with this. I relate to what's happening here. There are a few stories about displacement and people moving and and you know not being able to return to where they come from. And you know, as someone who's um, come to England uh, seven or eight years ago, been here for a while, it it, it that displacement also re- reflects some of my own insecurities or questions, and being able to have. Um, Someone else say that because I, you know, there's very little of my writing in the book, which I I think is one of the things I like the most really is I put together a collection of other people's writing, um, but them together form that message, that reflective message that I'm trying to, to provide.
0: And so the, the, looking at the the mix that you've got in there, so you've got some, um, I mean, I should say, I'm not a massive sci-fi fan, no, so no, that's, the, that's I'm, I'm taking it, or, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, Frederick Brown, yeah, um, yeah. Bruno yeah. Munari, yeah, yeah, these are yeah. not people who are, like, sitting on my shelf, but, you know, right. they're, they're, like, they're big right. names. Yeah, yeah. You've also got some new stuff in yeah. there, so that how, how did you go about, like, actually making that selection and, and choosing what you're going to bring in?
1: Right, so I think... Uh, the very first thing was to nail down the the novel. It took a while to find a novel that had never been translated. I was quite keen to have something classic um, in there. And also, the reason to have a novel was to be able to span the whole range of length. Because I thought... One of the initial supposition was science fiction is, is hard to get into because these books are heavy and they're big and they look like a series of, you know, dune or so like there's suddenly five books to read and you're like, I can't get into that. And being able to show the breadth, go from the hundred word short story to the novel was one of, you know, showing the the difference in everything in between. So starting with the the novel was um, was kind of that that point that helped define the rest, and with the novel, I started looking at the other classic things. So classic science fiction. Uh, Frederick Brown is, is is a favorite author of mine. I um, actually maybe I'm lying slightly because he's is my dad's favorite author, <laughs> um, and I, I clearly remember asking him. Um, we had a big bookshelf at home, so so what should I read from this? He said, you know, you should read Frederick Brown. I was like, I never heard of it. None of my friends had heard of it. Um, and he gave me that collection that's got, uh, in English, it's called Nightmares and gizen Stacks. Gizen Stacks, as far as I know, doesn't mean anything. The French translation doesn't mean anything either. And it was the most compelling short story. Sometimes they were just a page long, but they were like head twisters. They, they, So many brimming with ideas and also um, very freeing because it didn't try to describe everything in detail. It just gave you something to run with. So... I wanted Frederick Brown in there kind of from the very beginning because to me he represented a lot of the stuff that I like about the short story format of science fiction. Then I wanted some classic uh, things and I think some classic nonfiction. And one of the ones that I've had uh, for a long time in my head was this essay by uh, Mark Weiser about the computer for the 21st century. It's actually something I read when I was at uni. Uh, it was uh, it was a paper that was assigned for for reading in uh, human computer interaction, and he describes that sort of world where computers are all around us and they're ubiquitous. It's the, the term that he is coined ubiquitous computing, and he describes something that we might still think is relevant. So waking up and talking to a, a sort of voice assistant, so sort of Alexa style thing, and having things automated around your house, and that sort of dream was sort of from the 90s 80s kind of xerox park kind of innovation center and they're still relevant now and the warning at the end of that piece is that this information for all the uh, convenience that this technology brings there's a big big problem about privacy and he says it and he says it you know 30 years ago and i think it's it's brilliant to see how that's still relevant so that's the sort of classic component that, that i had in my head for for a while for the new stuff that was more of a challenge because i didn't quite know where to start i had a few friends who had friends who were writers and i thought mm, okay you know i and i had met them and i felt you know tom Mufflin, for instance uh, i i had met through a friend from uh, through Tom Etherington, uh, one person who helped with the design. And I thought, I th- I really like this style. And I thought, you know, maybe you should write about this. And when his story turned up, uh, it was, it's a, uh, uh, ooh, I. Give me the, one second. I will find it. The the title is uh, "Homesick Doppler Shifted Extraterrestrial Blues," and it, <laughs> you, you can be forgiven for not having that off the top of your head. No, no, it, it is. I mean, I, I like that. It's like a reference to Bob Dylan. a reference to um, to Radiohead at the same time, and it's 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 really great. And so, I when. When I read that, I was like, that, that's the kind of stuff I want in the magazine. That made me more confident in reaching out to other people. So there's someone else, uh, Julia Specht, that, um, that I met actually at, uh, at uni as well uh, in England. And I, her writing style is so brilliant, so like punchy. It really is um, something that I haven't quite read. And maybe she... I hope she forgives me to, to make that comparison. But there's something about the sort of um, almost like Bukowski, you know, that sort of very visceral thing, but very true and, and, and simple. And she takes that um, and makes it her own. It, it's unlike Bukowski, but it's got this so, so, sort of similar uh, feeling into it. So that was sort of the building sample. But the last thing was that actually a lot of science fiction magazine have got submissions open. And so you can send your short stories. And I thought, you know, there's something quite um, open about that, which the magazine wants to be open. It wants to be an entry point for people who aren't into science fiction like you and who might think, well, oh, actually, I'll give that a go. So I wanted to open that up to the community, I suppose. So I, I had a call for submissions up for a few months, and we had uh, 500 entries. Whoa. And so that's, that, a uh, that's a lot of reading, <laughs> up, up to 5,000 words. Uh, so <laughs> I I, um, I read a lot of them, most of them. Uh, I had some friends trying to give, uh, give me a bit, uh, bit of help with the reading and try to sort of triaging and ended up choosing. Uh, well, first I chose about 100 and I was like, well, that's not going to work. And then from the 100, we went to 10 and from 10 to 5. And so the five I've uh, ended up here and this. There's, there's there are really like great gems, like *Dud Planet* by Hannah Gerson is a brilliant uh, piece of, of you know, sort of putting yourself out of uh, of the planet Earth as a human and looking at it uh, from a different lens, and it, it, it makes things that you know, like pollution, wars, all of that, appear so far and remote, but also so silly mm, mm, uh, mm. and so avoidable. Mm, mm. And, and it's, it's this, that shift in perspective is, is, is brilliant. So um, it kind of built up like that, sort of from that, uh, that novel to the classic stuff, to the new writing commissioned from friends and people I knew to the... Um, to the submissions.
0: So, so, the, so you've got lots of, of people writing in here yeah. but the foundation of it was that novel yeah. which you translated from French into English for the first time yes. which you just kind of mentioned as like yeah I just translated this novel <laughs> like <laughs> I said at the start this is a bit of a crazy project is. this is one of the first crazy things I think like the, <laughs> I mean uh, so how do you begin doing something like that?
1: Um, you begin by Believing you can do it. I think a lot of that magazine is, is me not realizing the, the sort of depth <laughs> in which I am getting into. It's, yeah, yeah. it's a, a lot about this naivety of like, eh, I'm sure I can yeah, do that. How hard can it be? Yeah, right? exactly. How, I, that's, yeah. That's, that's literally becomes one of my motives. It's like, how hard can it be? The, real, the answer is really hard. It's really hard. And, I, and the, the reason why I think I was able to do something like that. Or if, so, all right, to answer your question, how do you start? thinking you can do that money I didn't couldn't pay a translator Uh, my English I think is good enough I've been reading in English for a long time Uh, my French hopefully is good I'm born in France Um, so when I read the book I felt like it was on the level that I felt comfortable with with translating it's a very um, though it was written in the 1930s, it feels still very fresh in the way it's written. It just doesn't use very old words or old style sentences. It's actually very direct. It feels a lot diary-like, so it's it's um, it feels very common essentially. So I felt like I had the tools to be able to translate that, um, and I suppose I just gave it a go. I uh, before reaching out to the uh, to the rights holder, I actually translated the first chapter um, just. Basically, as a test to myself, can I do this? How long is it going to take me? And then to also provide, to show them how serious I was about this. Um, that, I think, convinced them that I could do it, which is a good thing. But to actually take it to the level that it is now in the magazine, I, I had help from uh, people who either work in publishing or are translators. So Gabriel Bataille, uh, and a French friend of mine who's a translator Spanish in Spanish, um, has helped me with some of the how do you how do you deal with that problem mm-hmm. how do you you know that it's mentioned like that but that's a reference to something quite obscure in French how mm-hmm. do you bring that into English what's mm-hmm. the process mm-hmm. and though you know we're both French speakers it's the the how do translators deal with these sort of problems I think luckily there are a fair few translation kind of tricks in there but I didn't have to translate the whole Harry Potter world into French right. or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't have to deal with something that of that depth either. So there was, I'd say it may have accidentally been a good novel to to start translating with. And then I had two um, uh, two editors, kind of editorial, who work uh, in editorial friends, who um, were so kind to, to give it a read and kind of correct some of the things that felt a bit stiff in English mm-hmm. or things that might have slipped in, from mm-hmm. French um uh and that's uh Rokadia rocadia and uh, maria bedford uh both of them uh, took a look and i think if it's they gave me the confidence to make it into the book to mm-hmm. say okay this translation is good enough to be read by english people who um uh, don't even shouldn't even know that i'm am not english yeah right? that 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 was the intent to camouflage myself and i think that's also another exercise of hiding myself i in the in the book it's it's a i there's very little of my writing as i said and but i mean the novel is quite big and theoretically it's my writing but it's someone else's words and i feel quite comfortable with that more comfortable than putting my own uh, short stories or writing into that um
0: There there you go. I I can't speak to the quality of the translation because I haven't and wouldn't be able to read the original, but um, I really enjoyed the story. So that's that's one success at least. It strikes me then that there's also that. So, you know, the translation, Mm. it's your writing based on somebody else's words. The way that you paid for the magazine is through the sales of a font which again is your version of somebody else's work so so, so tell, tell us tell us uh, what, what's the story with that uh,
1: uh that's a story that actually happened i think in parallel of, of the magazine idea the magazine idea started sort of when i was at at penguin still and we went to the penguin archive with a with a few um with matt and tom uh, and the other actor uh, jim Stoddart. We went there and I saw the incredible kind of heritage of Penguin in science fiction. The you know they, they had a collection of, of women in science fiction already kind of the seventies, eighties kind of era. So already trying to, you know, being very forward thinking. And the the editor of uh, uh, is it uh, is Penguin's Penguin's uh, Connoisseur Science Fiction Collection. Um, his introduction uh, that I discovered after writing mine is very similar it's like people don't take science fiction seriously here's a collection that's going to make you take it seriously and th- all of that made me want to you know, go back to Penguin and say hey maybe we should do something here but I think understandably they were a little bit cold to the idea it came a bit out of nowhere um, they had other plans but that idea kind of stuck with me um, I thought I'll I'll do it myself. I'll 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 do that, and that happened in parallel, essentially, of making the font because the font was something that I had tried to do in the past. I had to try to make a font from scratch, and again, very much with the same idea of how hard can it be, uh, and and turns out it's really hard. Uh, so it, it you know it proved time and again it's really hard, um, but and it completely failed the first time. It, it, I I didn't spend. You know, a, a whole lot of time, but it, I did spend some time on it and it didn't work. And so, about a year later, I, I'm thinking I should give this another go. And I'm thinking maybe what my mistake was was to try to do everything from scratch, straight from my head, when I have no foundations in, in how to make a typeface. So, um, I stumbled on this book, which is a, a collection of short story, I think, created by Hitchcock. Uh, and it's got that really striking cover and multi, multiple colors. And this typeface, which I look for on the internet, I discover it's called Marvin, and I discovered that there's no good digital version of it. And I'm thinking, that typeface looks simple enough. It's uppercase only, so smaller challenge. Um, it's quite bold, so it's maybe a bit more forgiving. It's got strange shapes, but it's fairly kind of angular. You know, I thought... I, I Maybe that's another reason to give it a go, right? Maybe, maybe there's something there. So I started working on this. And then I kind of realized that they were complement to each other. The magazine idea and the typeface were, could work hand in hand. And it wasn't, strangely, it wasn't obvious at all that this was a, a science fiction <clears throat> font. But when I did more research... When I got deeper into the typeface and like type design, I realized all these roots of, of the, the Art Nouveau style was used on all these sort of 70s golden era um, science fiction stuff. So I thought, right, okay, I can use that for the branding of the magazine because the magazine needed something that felt friendly, that felt referential to, to the golden era, but at the same time felt modern. And Marvin itself had a lot of these characteristics it was a little bit quirky it was a little bit funny but at the same time it can look quite imposing because it's quite like a bold font so i started linking the two projects slowly in my head and when i had a when i it took me maybe about a year to finish just one weight of the font, working kind of evenings and weekends and the magazine had kind of got to by the time i finished the font, the magazine had got to a point where it was becoming real I was about to uh, sign the rights for the, uh, the novel, I was about to do a lot of big decisions that basically there would be no going back. <laughs> so I, 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 I put it online and the idea was it would be for the branding, it would serve as some, some sort of publicity marketing for the magazine, and at the same time a source of income. Initially I was going to make the font free because I thought, I you know, who am I to make it paid? But then the time I spent on it, uh, the fact that it supports multiple languages, including Cyrillic, um, made me think, actually, maybe this is worth £10. You know, £10 is not that much. And if if you like it and if you use it to make money, if you use it commercially, £10 is a reasonable fee, um, even for, you know, sort of amateur or good amateur level, right? Uh, for £10, you can you can spare that. But I still wanted to make something free. So it's still free to uh, download and to use as a personal thing. Uh, you can, you know, that's, that's... I wanted that, again, like that open access to it. But being able to sell it has actually increased the publicity loads. And I made a website for it, which was quite a fancy website. Still is, actually. It's been updated. It's even more fancy now because it's got viable fonts and stuff like that. But it was quite fancy. And it got quite a lot of attention in the sort of uh, digital design thing. And that kind of helped me build a sort, of, um, a sort of newsletter base, which I was able to use later on to talk about the magazine. And I ho- hopefully, I don't think I've badgered anyone, really. I've probably sent like two emails a year uh, to these people. Um, but it kind of made me more confident in the magazine because it was like, there was a box saying, if you want to hear about the magazine, you can tick that. And people ticked that. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. People are actually into that. Uh, that that's that was my validation as well. It was it was okay. You know, it's. I think shortly I had about ten thousand people download the funds, and about half of that ticking the visions box. And I was like, "All right, okay." Fine.
0: I mean, I'm going to stop you because yeah, yeah. I don't I don't know anything about making a fund. Right, right. But I'm guessing that getting ten thousand people to pay ten pounds is that's not normal.
1: <laughs> I, so that's not that's not normal but I think it's 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 so that to to make it clear it's not 10,000 people paying 10 pounds. It's 10,000 people downloading it and I think uh initially there were maybe 50 people who paid 10 pounds right. Right. Uh, which but you know it's better zero and but even that you know the, the fact that 10,000 people took the time to download even to use it later was a, a great uh commitment already and there was a second step to that is when I finished this one, I started working already on a... When I realized I wanted to use this for the magazine, I realized it needed to be more flexible. I needed to be used to use it smaller or thinner. So I was like, oh, I need to develop the whole family. And so really, to test the waters, I put it online. I said, I'm working on this. And I had, you know, I actually had things. It wasn't like a lie, but it was very early stages. And I said, you know, in a few months... There'll be, there'll be a family. You can pre-order the family. And actually, some people pre-ordered the family and the family was more expensive. It was like £70. And I was like, wow. You know, like, it, 10 people order that. It's like, I already have like a £1,000 kind of to between everything. And it's like, okay, that, that can work. You know, and, and printing and making a magazine is not exactly cheap. And I had prepared the money on the side just to be sure that, you know, in case everything failed, I could still go through, through with it. But... It, oh, the time that it took to make the magazine, the fund being online, actually paid for the first Brit run. Uh, it, it, it did totally. I didn't quite see it coming, I, it, and but the validation of it, the idea that people liking it was, um, yeah, was not. I, I, I don't want to say unexpected, but still surprising. You know, it's like I wanted people to like it. I made it so that they like it, but it still, it still feels. Kind of weird that they actually do,
0: (laughs) and and and, and, I mean like that's validation. But Mm. then also it turns up in a Netflix show.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's turned up in a few places now, uh, in where they're wonderful places. So it it's been used in uh, the Umbrella Academy, the new Netflix show, and they use it for the branding of a donut shop, which figures in like a few of the episodes. And they've used it so thoroughly and so well as well. They use it inside for the signage. They use it for the posters. I, if the if the designers happen to hear me, please get in touch. <laughs> I, I'd I'd love to know. You know, I'd love to know how you how you came to that decision. It was brilliant. And I, totally by accident, I was watching. I was actually doing a bit of work. I put that in the background, as you do with Netflix. Some of the time, you just put it in the background, do a bit of work, or read whatever. And I. I was like, I've seen this phone before. Yeah. What? Did you think you were just working too hard? I was just like, going what's crazy? going on? I, I, I paused it. I took a picture of, <laughs> of the screen. I was like, what's going on? And, that, and then I kept watching. I was like, it, it keeps coming up. That's mad. And then a few weeks later, I had a friend uh, from work who got an, an email from uh, West Ham for season tickets. Turns out they used it in the stadium. They used it on like <laughs> big banners to sort of arc back to all the players. And there's this wonderful Instagram called, uh, I think it's called One Shilling, which is about football programs from my 70s, 80s. And the great use of typography, great use of colors. And one of them, I think it's for the Wolverhampton Wolves. I'm, my football is Wolverhampton not... Wolverhampton Wanderers. Okay. Also called Wolves. Of, okay. Well, they used, they used Marvin uh, in the 70s for some of their programs. And I think someone in West Ham must be... Looking at that and being like "Ooh, that's a great typeface we need to make that reference to sort of all the players let's um let's use that and that's used like probably the biggest it'll ever be used it's a banner in a stadium um and so that's all great and and i i think i'm happy to say this in a strange way it's the license is fairly open it's really you can do anything as long as you don't use it in broadcast so you don't use it for titles and stuff like in which case you need a custom license which um, you know some people have gotten in touch about but the people from Netflix or the people from West Ham didn't need to do that because this props goods fine you know you're not you're not you're, you're selling it you're using it to promote you're not using it to make money out of that banner and I think that's great that they were able to get that for like 10 or 20 quid. I don't yeah, know. 10, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, and, and to the feeling I get from it is it's great. And I'm able to say this because I'm not making a living out of making fonts. I suppose I would have a very different opinion if that was my living.
0: Yeah. Well, I, and also, I think that comes back to the, the magazine thing as well. Like the, you know, the joy for you now is you've made this thing, you've put it out in the world and you start to see people responding to it in the same way that with the font, you see people like you know, using it and it's it the fact that it's not your living, you know. Yeah. The, like it kind of frees you, you, you from that. So, so when can
1: we expect to see issue two coming out? That's a very tough question. I think it was slated for kind of end of summer. Uh, I think I can stretch the end of summer until end of August in wow. my in my head. I'm I'm still hoping to they get, get there, but there are um, there are some interesting challenges. Particularly, what turns out to be really hard in there is not so much the commissioning, which you have a lot of control over, is the licensing. Mm -hmm. Getting the the sort of classic pieces and get that checked out and get the permissions done, that takes a lot longer. Some people take up to three months to give you a reply. You don't know if you can use it. It messes up your editorial order. All of the arc of the magazine can rely, you know, it's like you've got a keystone piece and it's not there. What are you going to do? So I'm I'm still hoping for sort of end of August, but I'm really not. Putting my, <laughs> you know, putting my name behind that right now. It, it's, it, you know, it, I think that's another joy of it. Is, it's a thick book. Um, and the other one I expect to be just as thick. And they work together in tandem. They don't rely on being published every month or every week or, or every quarter, or whatever. They, I wanted them to be sort of biannual. That was the sort of idea. But I like the idea that I can be flexible about it. It can be seven months, it can be eight before yeah and i think that's that's that flexibility is um uh, is because it's not my job i suppose and also it's why i think i was gave myself the permission to do all of that it's because it's not my job if it turns out it's not very good well i tried my best i i really did um if you if you like it that's amazing right but if you don't then you know i'm just having fun right well
0: i had a lot of fun reading it as well um and a lot of fun speaking today. So thank you very much for coming over.
1: Well, thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Okay, that's all for this week. I think it's totally fascinating the way Mathieu has worked on this project, bringing his own creativity to bear on other people's work. So whether it's the writing submitted by authors or the French novel he translated or the Marvin typeface he updated, it seems to speak to a particular part of his personality and it's led to this really special and really unique magazine. I'm very pleased to say that we have issue one of Visions available to buy in the Stack Shop. So if all this sounds like the sort of literary science fiction you want in your life, head over to stackmagazines.com forward slash shop to pick up a copy for yourself. We've also got lots of pictures on there and more information. So even if you're not buying, go and take a look to get a better idea of what this lovely magazine is all about. We're releasing this episode on Good Friday, 2019. So if you're listening to it as it's first released, I hope you're having a happy Easter break. And if you've got any long drives to family or quiet bits of time away from work, take a look in the podcast archives for lots more conversations with independent magazine makers. Just search for Stack Magazines wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, if you follow us while you're there, we'll be able to deliver our future episodes as soon as they're ready. Thanks very much for listening to this one and we'll be back with another episode next week.